You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 10th of September 2019 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View coming up today. It's a really extraordinary moment because as the kind of Brexit has almost like lingered on, what we've seen is like the mother of all parliaments, like the thing that is supposed to function, the thing that is supposed, the parliament that's supposed to be the example of the world, how it's kind of breaking apart. The UK's parliament is now suspended. My guests Hussein Kasfani and Tom Edwards will discuss this and the day's other news, including the issues that the UK should have been talking about for the past three years other than that one. And we'll look at why one adventurer has chosen to visit the deepest parts of the world's oceans. I'm Andrew Muller. Monocle's House View starts now. Welcome to the show. I'm joined today by Hussein Kasfani, journalist, editor, producer and author of the new book Follow Me Aki, The Online World of British Muslims and Tom Edwards, Monocle 24's executive producer. We begin in the United Kingdom and not just in the interests of using that name while we still can. Where we basically are right now is this. In 51 days, the UK is due to leave the European Union. However, it is now against the law for the Prime Minister not to request an extension if he can't get a deal. For very far from the first time during this fiasco, it feels like the UK is making its way around some Escher-designed obstacle course. It is obviously a bit soon in proceedings to start apportioning historical judgments, but we are not going to let that stop us. Um, The resignation of John Burko does prompt the question, uh, who has had a good Brexit? Are you inviting me to play the blame game? I am. Andrew, um, I think Burko's done uh, rather well. It is pretty difficult to say the same about many other uh, key protagonists in the in the Houses of Parliament. I must admit, when uh, it was put to me that this was going to be a theme today, I was invited to play Brexit Limbo. I was going to put my <laughs> dancing shoes on. Um, but there's really nothing funny uh, about it. I think what's good about Burko is he has unashamedly attempted to facilitate what he sees as, in principle, the best course of action by shaping where he can uh, the, the the machinations of Parliament to, to, to deliver a better outcome or a least worst option. Um, and I find the vilification that he suffered uh, confusing and yet unsurprising uh, because that is the job that he uh, is there to do. Now, I know some of his critics have said this is the first step towards a a politicisation of the the speakership, such as we have in the US, and I think that would be a very bad uh, development. I think the problem is that it seems likely from here on that whoever follows him in that role is probably going to be a more neutral, a more uh, muted figure, and I think that's regrettable at a time when whatever happens from here on in, viz Brexit, which we'll come to, the role of the speaker as the arbiter of, you know... the Parliament's day-to-day functioning is going to be absolutely critical. Um, Hussein, I'm, I'm tempted to ask you the opposite question, i.e. who has had a notably bad Brexit, <laughs> but <clears throat> we, we are unfortunately limited for time. Yeah. Uh, do, does it strike you, though, that this has been a test which has revealed, and this is a leading question, um, how extraordinarily mediocre or incapable a lot of our politicians are? I think for many years the United Kingdom's been quite an easy country to be an MP in, mm. um, and all of a sudden there's have been asked to do something difficult. Yeah, I think this is like, it's a really extraordinary moment because I think with like, and as the kind of Brexit has almost like lingered on, eh, what we've seen is like 
the mother of all parliaments, like the thing that is supposed to function, the thing that is supposed, the parliament that's supposed to be the example of the world, like how it's kind of breaking apart and how these things that maybe we took for granted in terms of how parliament works, how, because I think these problems that we that are kind of very evident now, you know, whether that's in terms of talking about safe seats or if we're talking about people being parachuted into like pursue particular like political roles, things that we kind of accepted for a long time. Now, all of a sudden, they become this problem because Brexit is such a polarizing issue. So I sort of wonder whether it's more of a perception that is now, it's more of an illusion that is now kind of being seen for what it is rather than a formerly very well-functioning parliament like falling apart. And Tom, is there something to be said for it in that sense, in the in the way that I, I've made the case before that there's a it's possible to argue that Donald Trump's presidency is an overdue stress test for America's institutions. Is it possible to look at Brexit in that way, as far as the UK's institutions go? I think it's certainly possible to look at it in that way. I struggle uh, to, to, to buy into that that narrative. I think what's interesting to reflect on what you've both just said is that actually these imperfections have long been visible. And even if you come to something where there seems to be broadly uh, public support, uh, you know, that, for example, the prorogation is a bad idea. You know, John Major did the same thing for purely short-term political uh, expediency, trying to avoid scrutiny for various uh, Tory misdeeds back in the mm. back in the nineties. Um, these fissures have always been there. I think it's unfortunate that I mean, you'd have to go back to probably the well, probably the sort of mid to late nineteen seventies to find a time when you had this meeting of critical uh, public problems with fallibilities in the effective functioning of Parliament. And I think that's why it's it's regrettable. And we'll come on in a minute to the real negative impact this is having on, you know, the, and I use in speech marks, issues that affect people in the country. Because, because of this stasis, because of the inertia in parliamentary process, really significant very long-term damage can be being done to things where you we could ill afford it before education the health service etc and we'll come to that in a second but i think it's that meeting of the critical issue of the day being so divisive and these fissures being exposed in a way they haven't before. Uh, so in three years into this nonsense, there's also a, a generational subtext that wasn't yeah. there three years ago, which is that basically there is now, well, that generation of voters born in the 21st century, which is, if you're as old as I am, is a terrifying thought <laughs> right there, but th they have not been asked. And they are, of course, the people who will have to live longest with this. I'm, I'm mm. not asking you to speak on behalf of, of the... Course, the I also think the the youth, of, the youth well. of Great Britain, but but nevertheless, you're the you're the closest we have. <laughs> you're the closest at this table we have to it. But yeah, it, sure. is it your sense that there is a that that's something that has not yet been properly factored in and, and may yet make its voice heard whenever this election happens? Yes and no, but I think some people are posing this question. Well, the young you know people who are now eligible to vote that weren't before either like the low end of millennial, like the low end of being a millennial, like Gen Z, mm. um, that kind of grey area, they haven't asked about Brexit. I think that actually the question, you know, there's a much bigger thing at play, which is that like this is a, this is a generation that has grown up, they've kind of grown up at a time of real kind of political polarity and to a degree like radicalism as well. So for them, like their issues aren't just about like the future of Britain being in the European Union, but it's also about being under like a Tory government for like, you know, their whole political experience being under a Tory government and those like fissures. Um, when we talk about a country that has seen kind of a historic level of like inequality, you know, the things that they're really like angry about are anything to do with like the NHS to like mental health gaps to things like, you know, legal aid 
uh, like lack of access to legal aid, um, Grenfell being like a big thing in terms of, you know, how that conversation is shaped, the housing that poor people live in, as well as just like general stuff about how they're going to live in terms of, you know, again, like not being able to afford houses or like not, maybe not being able to afford education. So during these three years, a lot of like issues have kind of come up, which I think for lots of people who work in news media and in politics have sort of been like pushed to the sideline because we look at just like the Brexit theatre. But in fact, there's all these other things that are in play which contribute to that conversation that this younger generation is like much more attuned to. We will come to those other issues uh, presently. Before we do that, Tom, I I want to ask you a question which transparently sets up our next point of um, discussion and also will enable you to despair at the internal uh, intellectual machinations of the British public, which is something I know you always enjoy. Um, A a YouGov poll published yesterday showed that 55% of Tory voters and 60% of Leave voters think that no deal would mean a clean break, which would mean the country could focus on other things. I mean, that is truly staggering, isn't it? I mean, it is one of all jokes aside, whatever your own politics on this are, it is literally impossible to believe that unless you know absolutely nothing. Uh, well, th- there you go. <laughs> I think this is, this is the other thing that's been exposed, is this ro- a, a staggering, deep-rooted ignorance of certain key parts of public life. I mean, I've mentioned on, I think, this programme or others on Monocle 24 before, Andrew, this fact that what what is the EU, you know, was the most Googled phrase in the UK the day after you know, the decisive <laughs> referendum vote. It was interesting to pick up on what Sam was saying about, you know, this, this long period of uh, Tory government, which, to my political memory, you know, I grew up in the 80s and 90s when I mean, that was a real, mm. you know, Era defy. It was an epoch of Tory uh, governmental power, and there was a significant recalibration of the political landscape through the mid nineties, um, started by John Smith and, and sort of finished by effectively, but uh, Tony Blair, who obviously secured then this long period of of Labour Labour government. Could there be one ray of light here that maybe there's a recalibration and to pick up on those themes that you were mm. talking about? Do people realise that, that there aren't binary solutions to these problems and actually a fragmentation of politics could be a good thing? Can we finally get to a point where we're a bit more issue-led with mm. how people cast their votes, make their decisions? And we may see, you know, um, that, that could drive people back to the centre because you have to be a bit more pragmatic and expedient about how you make your own personal voting decisions. Tom Edwards and Hussein Kasfani, thank you. We'll be back with more in just a moment. First, here's Yolin Goffan with some of the other stories we're following today. Thanks, Andrew. Hong Kong's embattled leader, Carrie Lam, has said interference in the city-state's affairs by foreign governments is deeply regrettable. The Beijing-backed leader was speaking after more violence in the city, which she said would not help to solve social issues in Hong Kong. And three U.S. House committees have launched an investigation into Donald Trump's attorney, Rudy Giuliani. At the center of the inquiry is the former New York mayor's alleged ties to Ukraine and whether the withholding of U.S. security assistance is politically motivated. And UK Labour Party MP Harriet Harman has entered the race to become Britain's next Speaker of the House of Commons. The so-called Mother of the House, the longest-serving female member of Parliament, is known for her campaigning on behalf of women's rights. The current Speaker, John Burkow, announced yesterday that he would stand down from the role by the end of October. Back to you, Andrew. 
Thanks, Yolene. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Mullet here with Hussein Kesfani and Tom Edwards. Well, let's move on slightly and gratefully embrace a parallel universe in which the 2016 referendum was either not called or went the other way, and the UK has therefore been able to spend the last three years doing something other than wasting copious amounts of everybody's time, energy and money to come up with something which might, if we're incredibly lucky, leave us slightly less well-off than we were. The UK was not without its problems before 2016, but how many of them might have been solved or ameliorated? Well, one voice which did manage to break through the Brexit-focused din was Tanmanjit Singh Daisy MP, demanding the Prime Minister apologise for Islamophobic comments. Uh, Hussein, why did that particular speech cut through, do you think? Partly because it was not anything to do with Brexit, and it was nothing <laughs> to do with... And I think also, you know, we talk about, is there going to be like a new you know, recalibration of sorts. I think part of that has come with the fact that you've got a Labour government or you've got like a Labour bench who are one of the most diverse benches that we've seen in a long time. So these other issues, and that isn't just to do with like racism, Islamophobia, but it's also to do with like social housing. It's also to do with welfare. Like these issues are like things that these groups of MPs who are often come from like marginal communities and people of colour, these are the issues that they got elected on. So it's something that they're thinking about. And also they're thinking about, well, in a post-Brexit environment, regardless of what that looks like, you know, what things do I want to achieve? And I think this is where these new conversations are kind of starting to break through. Now, Tom, do you have a, a wistful wish list of things that you would prefer the UK to have spent the last three years doing other than this? Oh, absolutely. I, just on that point, I think that was a good moment to reflect. We were despairing at the sort of failures of this storied uh, house, this venerable house of, 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 of democracy. What a great moment that was. That is Parliament functioning as it should, and it had real impact. So it can still work fleetingly. Um, yeah, a couple of things. One is general economic mismanagement. You know, we had this big uh, announcement about money being thrown at education this week. But if you actually crunch the numbers and critically look at what Brexit, including still potentially a no-deal Brexit, could do to the economy, the value of the pound, you could end up with this funding increase leaving us worse off than we are today, far less addressing drastic cuts that we've had on during the austerity years. And I think, again, another of these recalibrations is a challenge, perhaps more, to the notion that the Tories, as well as being the party of government, are the party of good uh, financial uh, management, because I think we've exposed that ruthlessly. You know, you've got local governments 25 30% uh, down on budget in real terms since the, uh, the start of the coalition. Critical problems. And as I said, the effect of those uh, cuts will be felt for several generations potentially. Well, finally on the news wrap to the latest expedition of the American financier and adventurer Victor Vescovo. Victor Vescovo has both a name and a private submarine like a Bond villain and has now become the first person to visit the deepest point in all five oceans. We are of course taking his word for that. His final dive was to the Molly Trench, five and a half kilometres below the surface of the Arctic Ocean. I chose, Mr Vescovo explained, to have some adventure whilst also doing something which would move us forward as a species. Uh, Hussein, adventure, obviously, and fine, it's his money. Good luck to him. Mm. Um, is he moving us forward as a species, do you think? I don't know. I don't know if it's as far as like moving us forward as a species. It reminded me a lot of... I, didn't, I hadn't heard the story until like I was sent the notes. But it reminded me a lot of... Um, Elon Musk's adventures, where it's often framed as being like, well, because I have all this money and I can do things that no one else can do, like put a car into space, that <laughs> even though it's kind of like fun, it's actually, we're actually doing something. We just don't know yet. It's like 
they kind of use that old kind of, oh, it's like that old kind of anecdote from like the Soviet Union days, which was that, you know, building all these, trying to build all these weird weapons and like, you know, mind control stuff is actually really useful because they'll lead to great civilian, you know, um, well, tools in the future. In, in fairness to Mr. Vescovo, they have deployed 100 sensor slash landers to various mm. ocean floors and they have discovered 40 new species en route. Of... Mm. I, I think it's probably nothing terribly spectacular, think, to be honest. Yeah, I think, I mean, just to kind of just... But add, still, you know. It, it, it might seem like it's... It, it, I'm sure it's like an amazing feat, and I'm sure that, like, it will be really useful for, like, some people. But it opens up, even though this is, like, such a fun story, it opens up this big question about, like, you know, these are people with extraordinary amounts of power and extraordinary amounts of privilege who are basically using things that, you know, taking ownership of, like, oceans and stuff, right? P you know, things that should belong to everyone. And at a time when we're talking about, you know, things like climate change and how that impacts people, especially, like, the poorest in society, I think this really opens up a question about, like, what kind of class benefits from these types of experiments? Well, is there a point here, Tom, a, a semi-serious and depressing one that, that this maybe is, <clears throat> excuse me, is going to be the potentially the future of pioneering research? That it's it's not going to be a like an enormous state enterprise like NASA, which was massively inclusive and employed hundreds of thousands of people. That it's just like some billionaire decides I want to build a submarine and we have to rely on them to do that. Uh, unfortunately, I think yeah, the envelope in exploration now is being pushed by the private sector. Now, you don't necessarily have to say that's a good or bad thing, and mm -hmm. private money is capable of doing a great deal of positive things in philanthropy, mm -hmm. in discovery, in exploration, and the rest. I think what is interesting is if you look at these projects which for so long seemed vainglorious until the likes of NASA or the Soviet Space Agency tackled them, um, the... the, the they seem prohibitively expensive. Even now, NASA says it will be 30 billion to put a man back on the moon. Uh, bringing things back to the UK for a moment, I don't understand how it costs 30 billion to put a man on the moon, but it costs 70 billion to tinker with a railway up to the north of England. Just going to show that <laughs> none of these things make any sense whatsoever. Um, do, do either of you have any sort of ludicrous, vainglorious project you would pursue in the event of journalism making either of you billionaires, because that, that, which, which does happen frequently? I'd like my own private submarine. I don't know. Yeah. Should we, we could go in together, Hussain? We, in, we can go build a private submarine. Yeah, that'd be cool. That'd be fun. Hussein Kasfani and Tom Edwards, thank you both. You're listening to Monocle's House View. Do stay tuned. The Entrepreneurs is Monocle 24's 30-minute weekly conversation with inspiring company founders. It's a bit like riding a bike, you know. It's, all, <laughs> it's, a, it's about suffering or commitment or determination. That's what it's about. Uncovering the secrets of growing a company. We build an amazing fast car, which is our restaurant, and we give the key to a 16-year-old Italian guy who doesn't have a driving license. And discussing the many pathways. I would say this, he was my meditation teacher, then he became my best friend, then we became business partners. And definitions of success. I don't think at the end of every day, gosh, I haven't done enough or we're not doing anything good. I am contented that we are at least doing our best. Join me, Daniel Bates, for a new episode of The Entrepreneurs every Wednesday at 2000 hours London time, 1500 in New York on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. And finally on today's relatively Brexit-themed show, a peroration on the pitfalls of poorly planned preparation. A prudent householder is always braced for minor emergencies, keeping candles, batteries and a torch to hand. Residents of climates prone to extreme weather may even lay in supplies of fresh water and dry food. However, few citizens of the United Kingdom 
a country traditionally both meteorologically and politically placid, will ever have pondered the necessity of fleeing their homes at short notice. And yet, this past week, several British police forces tweeted suggestions that people should ready a grab bag of necessities, including duct tape, a whistle and a radio, to be shouldered at the onset of some maddeningly unspecified calamity. It's part of an initiative called 30 Days, 30 Ways UK, a British version of an American campaign. In previous years, 30 Days, 30 Ways UK has gained little traction. In 2019, it's coincided with the last month before the latest Brexit deadline. Amid the online mockery which has ensued, there has been a fair amount of genuine bewilderment. It's a reminder that if a public information campaign fails to read the room, it can be the opposite of reassuring. That's all for today's show. Monocle's House View was produced by Tom Hall. Our studio managers were Steph Chongu and David Stevens. Coming up at 2000, a brand new edition of Monocle on Design. The House View returns at the same time tomorrow. That's 1800 London. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening. <laughs>